Thank you for joining us for today's message. We're always encouraged to know how God is using this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God is working in your life, please let us know by sending us an email to amen at imtheexchange.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at imtheexchange.com. Doing this will help us to bless others and bring messages to you each week. Today's message is from our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Please take a moment and prepare your heart to hear a word from God today. Listen, yesterday we did something that as a church, uh, we put our money where our mouth was. And we stepped out. We, uh, we've been studying in this new covenant what love really looks like and what unconditional love. Last year, you may remember we did a series called Get Off Your Donkey. And in that series, we see that Jesus redefined love, what love is. He crossed racial barriers. He crossed all kinds of boundaries. And, and he redefined what it was to love your neighbor. And so we've really been preaching that, that when he leaves us, the last thing, and I'll talk about it a little bit today, he tells us is to love one another the way that he loved us. And so we saw an opportunity, and we did that. We went yesterday. It was Pride Day here in the city of Houston. Um, they have a Pride Festival. And, and I understand this is controversial, okay? Um, but I want you to understand something. We went there with one agenda, and that agenda was to love people unconditionally because I've always struggled with conditions, Maybe I'm the only one in here, but you know, you, you do that. You're like, well, I love you, but if you change, or I love you if you, I love you. And we put all these conditions. So do we really love the way Jesus has asked us to love, period, first? So we kind of uh, made this plan, and yesterday we were on our way, and we pull up, and I'm with Pastor Kevin, and, and our team is gathering around. You know, we met at this parking garage. We met on this corner. And we had no idea, we've never been, so don't know what to expect, don't know where to go, what to do, so we're just like, okay, uh, here we go, let's just meet somewhere, and then we're going to figure it out. And we met in this corner, and we could see there's tons and tons of people all headed this direction. The street's kind of blocked off, there's pop-up tent, tailgate tent on both sides of the street, and so we just kind of stood there and looked at each other, and unfortunately, being the pastor, everybody expected me to have some advice, <laughs> so I was like, what do you want to do, anybody, what do you want to do, <laughs> and I said, okay, well, I think let's just head that way, that's where everybody seems to be going, so let's go that way and find out what's happening, and we got our banner folded up, and we're all wearing, you know, I'm wearing Pastor Hugs t-shirt with exchange on the back, and we just start marching down the street, and, and I notice everybody in line is looking across the street, and there's somebody with a megaphone behind a barricade talking to them. And uh, as we get closer and closer, you can hear what he's saying, and he's saying this, God hates you. You are abomination. You are disgusting. That's why your mama hates you. That's why your daddy hates you. God hates you and you're going to burn in hell. The Bible says. And he just starts making up stuff. And he just continued. And we're getting closer and closer to him. And of course, they're across the street. And you, you know, my heart's racing. And you just feel the, the intensity. And I was like, man, I don't know what we're about to walk into, what we're going to do. We get to the front of this line where everybody else is turning in to go into the festival part. And we're directly across the street now from this group of uh, Christians. 
We're going to call them that. That's what they believe they are. And, uh, and we stood there and we said, let's camp here. So we opened up our banner and it says, I'm sorry, real big on it. And it says things like this. I'm sorry for the way that the Christian community has treated you. We want to treat you as human. We want to love you. I'm sorry for hiding behind religion, hiding behind denomination, hiding behind. You know what I'm saying? And we opened up this banner, and we just all, there's 21 of us out there. And we just stood in the middle of the sidewalk where everybody's going. I kind of stood in the middle. Everybody else kind of. <laughs> I saw Diana and Lily and Selena. They're all kind of like, uh, we're, we're, you're going to stand in the middle of the sidewalk? And I just kind of stood out there in the middle, and I went like this. <laughs> and I would go, I'd point at my pastor hugs, and I'd go, they're free. They're free and optional. I don't force hugs on anybody. And people would walk by our sign, and they would do this. They would go, oh. And people started doing this to us a lot. And then people started doing this. And they just start crying. Tons, tons of them would walk by our sign and read this, I'm sorry. And they would cover their face, start, some of them got out of line. One of them, one of the girls, she got out of line. She leaned up against the fence, melting. She was crying so hard. And she said, I've never seen anything like this. I just wish my mom loved me like that. I wish my dad loved me like that. One of the guys, one of the boys got out of line, and he started crying. He said, nobody knows I'm here except for those two people I'm with because both pastors that I've had have told me that I'm going in hell unless I change. And he said, so I have to hide it. And I've told everybody that I'm not gay anymore. My job at that moment wasn't to go, well, here's what you need to do. Here's the next steps. My job in that moment was to say, I love you unconditionally. And Jesus loves you unconditionally. I mean, it is written that there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. The question was asked, which one of these looks like Jesus? There were Christians on both sides of the street. One of them probably looked and sounded a little more like Jesus than the other one. I'm going to leave it at that. That's not my notes. That was free. That was free. <laughs> oh, man, this is going to be an annual thing. And, and people have asked my stance and where I stand. And, and uh, I, I really am not sure my stance uh, on this issue. I've studied and studied and studied. And I have a lot of, of thoughts and a lot of things that I could, could uh, present. But the one thing that I know, one thing that I know is that Jesus told me. He told the disciples at the very end. He said, this last thing I give to you, you love one another the way I loved you. And when he says that, they have to go back in their mind and think about all the things that they've done that he's loved them through. Right? Come on, Peter was a moron. Uh, you know, these guys just screwed up a lot. And yet he still loved them through. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching my message before I'm preaching my message. Well, welcome to part number four of Bible 101. Today's, past, uh, today's message is entitled, For the World. Everybody say, For the World. 
for the world. Now, uh, I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're watching online or you're listening uh, because it's so important whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Most people have heard some uh, stories in the Bible, some Bible stories, but very few people have actually heard the story of the Bible. I play softball with a group of guys who are, several of them are going to Bible school. Man, we had a great conversation this last week because they were talking about their constitutional bylaws of their church that they were voting on and started talking about the Bible and one of them said something and uh, we just got into, so where did the Bible actually come, come from? And the confusion that was there. They said, well, it was canonized, canonized around 400. And yeah, but why? Why do we need the Bible? Uh, well, because it was all God's word and, and it was just what we needed to live our life. And I was like, that's it? That's why? That's why we got the Bible? And I was super nice. Well, I didn't say it like that. But I just thought, man, there's so much more to how and why we have the Bible than just, hey, you know, it's just God's word. He throw it out there to us. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, and the reason that it's so easy for people to dismiss some stories in the Bible, they hear some Bible stories and they dismiss it or, or they read something in the Bible and they have walked away from faith is because while they've been told some Bible stories, they may probably haven't been told the story of the Bible. And as Christians now, as adults now, it is so important that we actually know the story of the Bible because it helps you understand why the Bible says what the Bible says. It is a big deal because knowing what is, knowing where this came from is just almost as important as knowing what's in it. Now, the backstory sheds a lot of light on the story. So part of the challenge for us is regardless how you grew up, Christian, non-Christian, or maybe you became a Christian as an adult, but part of the challenge is this. The way that we got our Bible is not the way the world got the Bible, okay? Um, when you got your Bible, and we've said this almost every week, I'm going to remind you, but when you got your Bible, it was chaptered up and burst up, and it was marked and footnoted, and there was side, and then some of your Bibles have commentaries or some brilliant, per and I'd not say that sarcastically, you know, that studied, you know, they'll tell you what they believe, and, and, there, and you had a lot of help. So when you got your Bible, it was uh, wrapped up in genuine imitation leather, and, uh, and that's how we got it. But I want to remind you this, I'm going to start off this, and I started this off a couple weeks ago. Jesus didn't write it. Okay? All right. I always wonder if I'm going to get something thrown at me, because there are some people who believe Jesus wrote the Bible. He didn't write it. Jesus didn't write it, but Jesus is absolutely 100% the reason that we have it. Okay? He didn't write it, but he is the reason we have it. The story of the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis. The story of the Bible begins after Jesus was crucified and he came back to life. It's important to know, just like we've talked about every week just about in this series, is that if Jesus had been crucified and hung up on the cross, taken down off the cross, if Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took his lifeless body off the cross, stuck him in a tomb, and he stayed there, we would not have this. Okay? I didn't get a lot of head shakes because some of you are like, wait, hang on. 
But if Jesus had not raised from the dead, there would be nothing to write about. We didn't get the Bible because of what Jesus taught. Amen? Now listen, what, what he taught was incredible. There are lots of incredible teachers. There are lots of incredible teachers who, who really could, could uh, lay down the law. Jesus taught different, but, but we don't have the Bible because of something he taught. We have the Bible because people watched him die, which proved he was not who he said he was. And then three days later, there he is, walking around, alive again. So the events surrounding the life of Jesus, the resurrected rabbi, the resurrected son of man, the son of life, all these titles that he gave himself are extremely important to first century followers. So important that many of them, and we talked about this, Luke writes at the very beginning of Luke, when he's writing, he writes the book of Luke to Theophilus. When Luke writes, he says many, many people have sat down to document the life of Jesus. Many people have sat down to give a detailed account of the life of Jesus. We know that Matthew was one of them. We know that Mark was one of them. We know that Luke was one of them. And we know that John was one of them. We now call those the Gospels. Um, but when those were written, immediately, as soon as they were written, they started being considered valuable. They were considered reliable because of who wrote them. They were considered sacred. They were considered inspired. And they were considered scripture. Now, once again, I want to remind you that when these people sat down to document, when, when Luke documented Luke, he was writing for Theophilus, who was just obsessed and wanted to know everything he could about Jesus. So Luke wrote the book of Luke for Theophilus, okay? John wrote the book of John for all future generations. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew to the Jews because he was wanting, he was trying to show the Jews. Jesus is who he says, he's who we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He tries to give them the lint and show them that that's who we've been waiting for the whole time. Mark, he sits down with Peter and he documents this book of Mark. And so when they were writing their documents, they were not writing the Bible. Did everybody get that? There was no the Bible. It didn't exist yet. They were just simply documenting in detail the life of Christ. And what's crazy is eventually people risked their lives to protect those documents. Not the Bible, just those documents. So this is where our story picks up this week. Okay? By the second century, the Gentile church, who still did not have a Bible of their own, okay, everybody think with me through this, the Gentiles didn't have a Bible. Most of the Gospels had probably been written and were in circulation, but the Gentile church started to adopt the Jewish Scripture, okay, or the Hebrew Bible, or the uh, Law and the Prophets is what they called it. So they began to adopt the Jewish scripture and they put it into Christian worship and it became a part of their Christian worship at the time. They looked through it and they gave it a name, a new name. They called it the Old Covenant. Okay? Not too far down the future, they took the Latin term and it became Old Covenant. Testament. I think it probably should have always stayed Old Covenant because I think Old Covenant's a lot more clear. 
But why did they call it old? Is because Gentile Christians, now when I say Gentile Christians, these are non-Jewish people. These are the people who've actually seen Jesus or heard the stories of Jesus and they have changed their lives and they are followers of Jesus. So these Gentile Christians, they recognize that God through Christ had done something new. Okay? Why did they call this Old Testament? They recognized that God through Christ had done something new and that God had fulfilled he had completed his promise to his people, his promise to a nation, and then God established a new covenant with that same nation that now included every nation of the world. So why call it old? That's why. But still, to this point in history, there's still no Bible. Get it? So, there's just some Hebrew text that they've adopted, the Jewish scripture, the law, and the prophets that they're now using as their Christian literature. Now, there's also some stories floating around that are being documented and passed around and told about some guy who raised from the dead. And then there's also these documents floating around from this crazy church planner guy who's just really, really building the kingdom, and he's growing the way, and uh, he's building churches along the Mediterranean basin. We know this guy as the Apostle Paul, right? But the Apostle Paul actually stepped onto the pages of history as Saul of Tarsus. Remember that story? So he comes in as Saul of Tarsus, sometimes known as Paul. And the reason that he has two names is because Saul was his given Hebrew name. But he was also a Roman citizen, so he would use his Roman name. But when he moved from this brilliant genius Pharisee of the law into this fabulous budding church planner, he began to take on and use his Roman name, Paul. So the Apostle Paul is super famous, right? If you are here today, or you're watching online, or you're listening, and you've ever read any of the New Testament, there is a good, 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 good chance that you've read some of the things that Paul wrote. Paul wrote about two-thirds of what we call the New Testament. That Those are his documents. So Paul was a famous, famous person. In fact, to a lot of non-Christian people that are not here this morning or whatever, to, uh, to maybe some of you who haven't really been versed in the Bible, you've at least heard of the Apostle Paul, right? So the Apostle Paul is famous. In fact, if he had his own Twitter account, it would look like this. Okay? The Apostle Paul. You can find him at the Colossal Apostle. Okay? He follows three people, me and Pastor Kevin, since uh, Kevin made this for me. He's a Pharisee. He's an author. He's a preacher. He's a church planter. Right now you can find him. He's wandering the Mediterranean rim. Or you can go to his website, wassaulgotthecallnowpaul.com. Okay? So the point is, is that Paul was the man, okay? Paul's famous, and, and right now Paul is super famous. But if Paul were here today, he would say this, whoa, 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 that's not at all how I view myself. 
That is not me. I mean, that's how you see me on this side of history. But that's not, that's not how I've ever viewed myself. In fact, Paul, he's writing a letter to the Christians living in Corinth that he's just visited. And he says to them in this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles. And don't even deserve to be called an apostle. Because I persecuted the church of God. See, one of the amazing things about the Apostle Paul is he's the first person really noted as trying to single-handedly bring down and destroy the Christian church, the Christian movement, okay? They called it the Nazarene sect because Jesus was from Nazarene. Some, some begin to call it the way because they had this way uh, uh, to life and, and this way about them. And Paul decided, I'm going to single-handedly destroy them. I'm going, these, these guys, they have become Christians, and then they come in and they hijack our Jewish scriptures, our law and our prophets, and they start using our Jewish scriptures in their Christian worship. Yeah, I don't think so. And Paul, man, he was a Pharisee. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant Pharisee. And so he decides that he's going to take down the church. They were robbing from Jewish tradition. They were robbing from the value of what went on inside the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem. And Paul was done with it. He was going to put a stop to it. So he goes to Jerusalem. He got the high priest and the chief priest to basically deputize him and allow him to go anywhere he wanted. He, went, he wanted to get into Judea and into Galilee. Basically, he could go anywhere. And his job was to find people, Jews, that had accepted the way, okay, who had joined this Nazarene sect. And he was going to put them down. He was going to kill them, destroy them. He was at least going to torture them. And he did this often to the point of turning against the way. Okay, that was his job. Shut it down. So his entire life, Paul carries this burden knowing what he used to do. What he used to do to the church. How he used to destroy them. And then all of a sudden, in this Strange twist of events. Only God knows why this happened, but your heavenly father decided that he's going to recruit Saul of Tarsus to become the person who almost single-handedly began to spread the good news, the gospel around the world. especially starting in the Roman Empire. And who knows why God chose him? We don't know. I mean, I've preached a lot of messages, messages on why God chose him. We know, obviously, this guy was a guy of influence. <laughs> Have you ever seen, like, um, a famous rapper or a movie star or whatever has all this influence, and you're like, man, if they ever just became a believer, you know how much power? That's probably what God was doing when he was setting up in heaven, he's watching, he's like, man, whew, Paul, <laughs> ah, he does some damage. He really does some damage, man. That guy is good at turning uh, people against us. I think I could use that, you know. For, for whatever reason, God picks Paul or Saul of Tarsus, and in one moment. Now, the message for you, I think, to 
in this story right here is that regardless of who you are, regardless of where you came from, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who your mama is or who your daddy is, there is room for you in the kingdom. Right? I mean, we can get that at least from this story right here. So Paul is, is shamelessly just destroying the church. So as you look at your story and you think, but you don't know what I've done, Pastor Jared. You don't know the life I've lived. You don't know the mistakes I've made. You don't know how bad I've messed up. You don't know, you don't know anything. Let me just tell you, you pull out your list and let's put it right next to Paul and the guilt and shame that you feel probably pale in comparison to the things that he did. I mean, he destroyed Christians in the name of God. That's pretty bad. I mean, I know some of you are bad, but I don't know any of you that bad. So Paul's important. Paul is really important to the story of the Bible. Paul is important to the story of the Bible, and I'm going to give you three reasons that I believe so. One, he wrote some of it. Okay? That's pretty important. You, you want to know people who've influenced, who have influenced the story of the Bible? Paul, he wrote some of it. Paul wrote a lot of letters uh, around the Mediterranean realm, but 13 of these letters survived antiquity. Several of them weren't to churches. Not all of them were to churches. Some of them were to individuals. There was one of them that was a real famous letter, and it was actually written to Christians who were living inside of Rome, and it was this really long letter, and they called that the Book of Romans. Right? And, and that was to Christians living in Rome, even though Paul hadn't actually been to Rome yet. He goes ahead and he gives them the, this book, this advice. But anyway, his letters immediately, as Paul writes these letters to churches and to individuals, they were immediately considered valuable. So valuable that the Christians, the Christian church, begin to meticulously copy his letters. And over time, they were considered sacred scripture. But again, the thing that remember that you have to understand is when Paul was writing these letters, there was no Bible. Paul wasn't writing these letters going, man, I know John documented this, and I know, I know Luke wrote some stuff, and Matthew, and, and they're probably going to get their stuff in the Bible. I need to get my stuff in the Bible. I need to get my stuff in the Bible. I got to get, I got to write this good, man. I need to say some things, to shake some things. You know, I got to get this in the Bible, because the Bible one day is going to be the, the number one selling book in all the world, and I want my stuff to be there. He didn't know. He, didn't, he was writing to churches who were starting off, and he was encouraging them and building them up and trying to give them advice. And he was trying to get some of the Jews to wake up and go, yeah, you know, you don't have to do it. He was trying to get some of the Gentiles to go, whoa, 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 you don't have to. You know, he was giving them all this, this valuable information, but no one in, the, in that time period had any clue that one day this was going to become the Bible, that somebody would take this and then take a bunch of letters and, and put them together and then eventually create the Bible. He writes letters to Timothy and Titus. And, and again, he wasn't writing the Bible. He was writing to his friends. Number two, the reason I think Paul's so important to the story of the Bible is that he explains the relationship between the parts. Man, this is where the church, we got to figure this out. Probably, in my opinion... This is one of the big 
biggest obstacles that we face because people, and I've heard Pastor Kevin say this, you know, the problem when you say, when people just say loosely, well, the Bible says what the Bible also says. So if you just say, well, the Bible says this, somebody can say, well, the Bible also says this because you can go to Sunday school and come out and the Sunday school teacher is telling you how Jesus is love and Jesus is this and God is so full of love and it's awesome. And then you can go and hear the pastor stand up and talk about how, and then God told him, you put all the men and women, or you kill all the men, put the women and children over here and burn them. Well, in Sunday school, I thought he was so love. Let me tell you, if you don't understand the, where the Bible, the story of the Bible, it can be confusing. And so Paul, if you've ever been confused, if you've ever walked away from faith because you thought the Bible was contradictory to itself, if you've ever been confused on why, why it looks like God was one way over here and then why God looked different over here, why God looked really different over here, and then all of a sudden you get over here and all of a sudden he's way different way different and you're like that's kind of weird does anybody ever thought that just me come on you gotta nod your head at least with me i mean i thought that was weird how god could look so schizophrenic at times right if you've ever been confused about that paul is your guide paul explains how christians should view and how christians should use the old testament and he would know because he was an expert in this so when Paul's telling you, Christians, hey, guys, believers, you Gentile Christians, this is how you need to use the, this, the law and the prophets, I'm going to tell you the reason is because he was an expert in the law and the prophets. He was an extraordinary Pharisee, and he knew the law inside and out. And then all of a sudden, in one single afternoon, one moment, Paul pivots from the, being this incredible Pharisee, following the law and preaching the law, in one moment, he pivots and becomes a follower of Jesus in one afternoon. The Apostle Paul had extraordinary clarity about the relationship between the Jewish scriptures and who Jesus was and the letters that he began to write. And so the Apostle Paul began to use, he began to use the Old Testament and the law and the prophets. In fact, if Apostle Paul were here today, or let's just say if he were here when you got your Bible, when you were given this, whether it was as a kid or whether you were given this as an adult, uh, whenever you were given your Bible, if Apostle Paul was there that day, he might have said, he might have given you two pieces of advice to follow along with. One, he would probably say, first of all, listen. Read the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation, not application. Okay? Okay? Read it for inspiration and motivation, but not application. And the reason I say that is because Paul wrote that to Christians. He said that several times. You go look at 1 Corinthians chapter number 10, verse 6 and 11. He says these are examples. Those things were written as examples. Examples on why you need to look to God in all things. Examples on how you need to behave, how you need to act, how you should treat uh, others. Their inspiration. But remember, the entire Jewish Bible, and Paul knows this, 
So he's trying to express this to the Jews that are, that are transitioning into Jesus followers. And then, of course, all the Gentiles who are coming along. He's trying to express this, that the Jewish Bible is organized around a covenant, a Jewish contract between God and an ancient people in Israel and Paul is saying, listen, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, so I understand exactly what this is supposed to mean. I understand exactly the stories that have emanated from this contract. And so I get the prophecies that were prophesied by the prophets. I get that, and I see that. And so I want to help you within the context of this contract understand why God said what he said. Then... With the coming of Jesus, there was a brand new contract. And you as Gentile Christians and even as Jewish Christians, you're a part of a brand new covenant that God made with us. That he built with us and it's a better covenant. You know, the more I've studied and read and, and get really dug into this thing, and I, I said this during our I think Easter Sunday, I know I ruined that verse for a few people. You know, Jeremiah 29, 11. I know I ruined that verse for some of you, but we, we take Jeremiah 29, 11, and that's just an example, just an example. And we post that and we say, listen, this is what God said to us. This is what God's saying to you. You know, I know the plans I have for you, blah, blah, blah. But if you go and you read the verses before that, you'll find out that he was writing to the Babylonians. And he said, if you can tarry 77 years then I'm going to bring you back to this place because I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. See, he wasn't actually writing that to us. But that's okay. You know why that's okay? We have better promises. Better promises on this side. So we don't have to get discouraged. We just need to understand, well, he actually wasn't writing that to me, and that's okay. And if you want to say, well, he was writing that to me, actually, well, then in 77 years, God bless you because he's going to bring you back to wherever you want to go. Because that's what he says in the verse before it. So if we're going to make it super applicable, then let's make it super applicable, right? But we don't have to be upset that we can't use all these promises because we got better ones, way better ones, way better ones that are covered under the blood of Jesus that are new covenant promises that God has given us. So he says, so I just want you to read the Old Testament for inspiration and motivation and not application. And then he would say, now take your application cues from Jesus' new covenant command. You get your inspiration and your motivation here. But when it comes to living your life and how to manage your money, how to make decisions within your marriage, how to make decisions for your kids, the Apostle Paul clearly says we should take our application cues from Jesus' new covenant command. That's a big deal, right? But what is Jesus' new covenant command? I've already preached this message today once. At the end of his life, when he's, when he's about to go, he's sitting with his disciples in the upper room having their last meal and their last Passover meal together. And he says this, a new command I'm giving you. And they had to think in that moment, whoa, 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 whoa. Only God can give new commands, okay? Only God can give new commands. And probably when they thought that, they went, but only God can Raise dead people. Okay, never mind. Go on, Jesus. <laughs> you know? And he says, this new command I give you. And he says, it's not another command to be added to the other commands. 
It's not a command to just add to the bucket of commands, shake it up, throw it on the ground, and then figure out how to live your life. This is the preeminent. This is the end all command. This is the guiding, the North Star command. He says, guys, here it is. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. In fact, this unique kind of love, the entire world will know that you're my followers. Uh, you know, Kevin said it yesterday. He said, which one of these looks like Jesus? Let me tell you something. There are uh, thousands and thousands of people that walked past us. The whole world, by this kind of love that you display, you know, there was, there was two groups of people saying two different things. One group of people caused everybody to get angry and to get upset and make everybody go, I'm not interested. One group of people caused everybody to go, wow, whoa, thank you. One looked like Jesus. He says, by this kind of crazy love, this, this unique love, everyone will know you're mine. Everyone will know you're with me. In other words, you've been loved by others, but I'm not asking you to love others the way that, that they love you. That's called the golden rule. I'm giving you the platinum rule. The platinum rule is way better than the golden rule. It supersedes everything. He says, I want you to treat everyone you meet. I want you to treat your family, your friends, people at work, everyone that you come eyeball to eyeball and face to face with. I want you to look at them the way I've looked at you. You know, I've preached this for years, but yesterday I did it. You know, and, and I am ashamed, but I'm not ashamed to say that it took me that long to do it. It's easy to stand up here and say it. It's easy as Christians but to hide behind this and go, well, we love everybody. You know, we just love. We love. We, you know, we, we embrace. But to do it, to really do it is another thing. Then the next day, after Jesus makes that statement, Jesus puts on a demonstration of love that would take their breath away because it took his breath away. The Apostle Paul would say, this is your guiding light when it comes to your behavior. In his letters, he's filled it with applications of Jesus' new covenant command. In fact, if you ever read Paul's letters, you'll see things where he says, don't do this and don't do that, or do this or don't do that. He's not giving you new commands. He's giving you applications, ways to live life and put this into practice and what it means to live your life in light of the fact that God, through Christ, has done so much for you. Okay? That God... Through his son, Jesus Christ has done so much for you. Here's a couple of examples of what he says. He's writing to a letter, a letter of, to Christians in Philippi, and he says this in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. He didn't say it was easy, but it is simple. Okay? It is simple. It's not hard to figure it out, but it's... Maybe more difficult to actually put it into practice. Have the same mindset as Jesus. Don't power up. Don't use something that Jesus came and he submitted himself and he became a servant. A master servant. Jesus never powered up and became this, you know, he didn't power trip. 
And Christians, sometimes we could do that. He didn't walk into a restaurant and go, yeah, I'd like that table in the back. And they're like, sir, we're so crowded. And he's like, yeah, but I'm Jesus. Okay? He didn't do that. He didn't do that. He submitted himself. And he became a servant. If you want to be a good husband, if you want to be a good wife, if you want to be a good father, a good mother, a good son, a good daughter, a good employee, a good employer, he says, then have the same mindset. And everything you do, have the same mindset as Christ. You don't need 10, you don't need 9, you don't need 8 different commandments. I'm telling you, if you'll just have the mindset of Christ, everything falls into line after that. He says this to another group of Christians in Ephesians 5. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You mean to tell me he wants me to submit to you? And he wants you to submit to me, one another? We're submit. I, how am I supposed to submit to someone who's not worthy of my submission? I know them. I know what they've done. I know who they are. That's kind of the point here Paul's trying to make is you're not submitting to them because of who they are. You're not submitting to them for yourself. You're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Christ came and he got up under your burden and he lifted that. What Christ did for you, you could not do for yourself. And he's saying, I'm asking you to now replicate that and do that for one another. This is what it should look like in marriages. And this is what it looked like for our kids and for other people. And Paul writes in another letter to, in, to the church of Ephesus. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. Forgive them? Do you know what they did to me? You know how bad they hurt me, how bad they broke my heart, how bad they tricked me and manipulated You don't know, Pastor Jared, what I've been through. Again, we're missing the point. We're missing the point. This new covenant command, he says, be kind, compassionate to one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. Do to others as Christ has done for you. Again, in the letter he wrote, he said, when Christ, what Christ did for you, he basically paid for you. He bought you, okay? He paid for your sins and he brought you out. So consequently, you don't even really belong to yourself. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Okay? Your bodies don't belong to you. They were purchased by your heavenly Father. And the reason that we should honor God with our bodies is because God bought us with a price. So we have to be careful what we do with this temple. Okay? That, that he paid for us. And he bought us. And, and in doing that, we should honor other bodies. Because he bought them as well. And that is a reflection of what God in Christ has done for us when we honor that. We could go on and on and on because the Apostle Paul was so clear uh, with the Old Testament and that the Old Testament all pointed to Jesus and it's full of inspiration and it's full of stories. But when it comes to our behavior, he's saying, listen, take your cues from what Christ has done for you. 
this kind of demonstration of love. This is brand new for people. A lot of people don't get that. The thing is, is I've heard this my whole life, kind of. But I've seen also what I saw yesterday across the street. You can't, I can't tell you how many times I've really thought, Man, I wish I had that kind of courage to go stand across the street and do what they're doing. Because that, man, that's what God really wants. But that's not the kind of love and, and command that God left us, that Jesus left us with. That's not what he's asked us. We have to create a habit and embrace the idea to, create every, to, create, to treat everyone who we come in contact with the way Christ treated us. So back to the third reason. Paul is so important to the story of the Bible. One, he wrote some of it. Two, he explains the relationship between parts of it. And number three, he authenticates the most important event recorded in it. The Apostle Paul authenticates in a way that no one else does the most important event in the Bible, which is why we have the Bible. And, and it's the only reason, because we wouldn't have the Bible if it wasn't for this one particular event. And what is that event? The resurrection. You know, you're a little shy there, but that's okay. The resurrection. The resurrection. Because if there was no resurrection, there would be no Bible. And we have to really understand that. Our whole Bible, our whole basis of life was centered around this one event. Now, here's why this is important to, to, our, to our line of thinking. This is why it was important to Paul. is because perhaps when you're in high school or Bible school or something, and I've heard this a few times. I've read some, some books or articles that, that kind of say things like this. But... There are people who can dispute or have disputed the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, I've heard it said Matthew didn't write Matthew. Mark, nobody really knew exactly. You know, they could dispute that nobody knew who this Mark was. It's been disputed that Luke that didn't write Luke and that uh, John may have wrote John, but they don't believe that John wrote John and that the timeline's all off. And all of this is disputed that none of it happened when, when it said it was happened. It was all created and written by the Christian community. And it was many, many years after I, some eyewitnesses supposedly had seen the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And it became a myth of the resurrection. And it grew up over time. And it was written over time. And eventually embraced by the Christian community. And became a stake in the ground for them. Okay? So that's out there. There's a lot of problems with that way of thinking. Uh, not to mention... The fact that why in the world would someone in the first century abandon their religion to embrace this Jewish sect, lose their job, be ostracized by their family, persecuted for the rest of their life, forced to worship a God, not a new God, not one of the gods, God that they actually left their Jewish religion to worship. Now they're forced to worship that God even though they left that God. And now they're abandoned by everybody that's still worshiping the same God that I'm supposed to be worshiping. That doesn't make any sense, right? So we're going to leave that alone for a minute. But the problem with that argument is not what we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. The problem with that argument is what Paul says. Paul's letter to Corinthian believers, and I want you to really get this. Paul's letter to Corinthian believers 
is indisputable evidence that Jesus' resurrection was accepted as fact, not immediately, not eventually. Okay? When Paul writes about the resurrection, it was accepted as fact right then. Not eventually, not over time. Because of this one letter, we have evidence Jesus was accepted as raised from the dead in the Christian Jewish community in Jerusalem immediately following the event of the resurrection. Now to make this case, we're going to have to go kind of old school for a minute and we're going to get a little teachy. And I know that this series maybe has felt teachy to some of you. But for you to understand who we are as a church and where we're going, we want you to understand the Bible and where this came from. So I'm going to pull out a timeline here. Uh, so that you can understand. Now, again, if you've ever lost confidence in the Bible or tried to walk away from faith because of something in or about the Bible, then you really need to understand this. First of all, nobody disputes that the Apostle Paul was a historical character. Okay? So everybody in or outside the Bible, that's fact. Also, nobody disputes that he wrote the document that we call 1 Corinthians. And nobody disputes the fact that he wrote it right at the year 55. And when he wrote it in the year 55, he wrote it to a church that he had planted three years earlier in 52. After visiting Jesus' apostles in Jerusalem, he visited them twice, one in 49 and then again, or in 40 and then in 49, which was only three years after his conversion when he became a Jesus follower in 37. Okay? So now it's the year 37, he's a Jesus follower. Now there are some pretty good secular historians that believe that Paul maybe became a Jesus follower around uh, 35, the year 35. But either way, that is only two or three or even five years after Jesus was actually crucified in 33. So for many of you, you see why this is important immediately. But the Christian community, if, if the Christian community created and fabricated the Christian life of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus, if they fabricated the story of the resurrection, then how in the world did Paul know about it so close to the actual timeline of when it happened? So if the church fabricated this and they wrote it years and years and years, years later, why did Paul know about it and why was Paul talking about it right after it happened? Christians... Living in Corinth, in his letter, he writes this. He's, he's talking. He says there's hundreds and hundreds of people living inside the city who actually saw Jesus alive from the dead. He's telling the church in Corinthians. He's like, in Corinth, he says, I saw him. There are hundreds and hundreds of people who saw Jesus. Here's his actual words in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. Now, when he says that, he's talking about three years ago when I was physically with you. I want to remind you, this is what I said three years ago when I was physically with you. 
For what I have received, I pass on to you as first, as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Now, this was around 55 or so, and he's saying, I received this. I didn't make this up. I wasn't given this from, from some random source. I received this, and as I receive it, I'm passing it on to you that this is of utmost importance. This is so important, and he says that Christ died for our sins. He's saying, I told you three years back when I was with you, I'd already said this, but now I want to tell you, I've been back to Jerusalem, and there are hundreds Hundreds and hundreds, and it has now been accepted by the Christian community that Christ was the final sacrifice. This is what he's saying. Now that I've been back to Jerusalem, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people that actually saw him, it is now accepted that Christ was the final sacrifice for all of our sins. I saw it with my own eyes. I was already preaching this to you, but now that I've been back, I've seen it even more, and so I'm rewriting he goes on, he says, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, which he says, Cephas, that's Peter. Wait a minute, how did Paul know that Jesus appeared to Peter? Peter told him. <laughs> he, Paul was just back in Jerusalem with Peter. Okay, he was just with Peter, and Peter tells him this. And so Paul's telling him, listen, he appeared to Peter. Okay, so Peter told you that. How do you know he appeared to the 12? They told him. He was just with them. He writes and he tells the stories of he was just with them. And now he comes back and listen, Peter saw him live, the 12. He appeared to the 12, and everybody's like, how do you know? Because they told me. I just saw them. Can you imagine how exciting this had to be for him? I mean, I'm excited about it, and this is a couple thousand years later. But he's passionate because they told him this. And then he goes on in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. He says, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Now, again, he's writing to a group of people that he's already been with, and, but he's been to Jerusalem now, and he's saying, I want you to know there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that saw him alive, not a hundred years later, this is a couple years now that I'm back visiting, and not a thousand miles away, back in the town that they actually took his life, where they judged him, where they beat him, and then they sent him outside the city and crucified him. At the end of that verse, Paul writes, and most of them are still Living, though some have fallen asleep. And this is really cool, really powerful. But have you ever wondered why he said that? That some have fallen asleep? From the very beginning, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Christians often started referring to death as sleeping. Why? Because when you go to sleep, you eventually... When you go to sleep, you eventually... Yeah. You eventually wake up and when you have seen your dead rabbi go into the tomb and then come back to life when you have had breakfast on the beach with your dead rabbi you begin to lose fear of death and when you lose fear of death they begin to say they were sleeping because all of a sudden death didn't have power over them like it had once before 
So now to the Christian world, it was different. Death wasn't, they didn't just die, they're sleeping because we know eventually he said it over and over and over and over and over. They're just sleeping because eventually they will be woken up. And the Apostle Paul, writing very clearly, he says that everybody in Jerusalem, they know something's happened. I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of them. And they begin to embrace this. And then Paul goes on and he's still convinced. He's still trying to convince this church. He's given them all kinds of, of proof. Then he goes on and he says this. Then he appeared to James. Dun, dun, dun. At that point, there were gasps in the crowd. <gasps> Everybody. That's, now, this is a big deal. Why is it so important that he wrote this, that he appeared to James? Because James was not a believer that Jesus was who he said he was until later why did James not believe that Jesus was the Messiah the Savior of the world because James was Jesus's brother you go home today and try to convince your brother that you are the Savior of the world okay listen it's not that easy you can't do it and James didn't believe it James didn't believe it until until James Oh, this is powerful. James watched his brother hang on the cross and broken and, and destroyed. Because it's his brother. They, he watched them take his body down off the cross and, and put it in a borrowed tomb. He watched it and it was destroying him. And then all of a sudden, he's walking around three days later and James is just broken and distraught. And he's tapped on the shoulder. He turns around and his brother's standing there. And do you know what James did after that? He became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James went from not believing that Jesus was who he said he was to not only being a believer, but he's now the leader of the church. That's my brother. My brother is my Lord. He's my Savior. He's the Messiah that we've been told about our whole lives. Something changed when he saw Jesus alive. It wasn't because James wanted to eventually, you know, be the leader in Jerusalem. It wasn't because James wanted to be persecuted his whole life. It wasn't because James wanted to be a martyr one day. So it was because James saw his brother alive. And when you see Jesus alive, after he said everything about himself, and then he proves that it's not true because he dies, and then he comes back to life, man, that changes everything. But Paul began to quote a creed. That was adopted. This was adopted in the early Christian church. And it was a creed that they quoted and they said all the time. And what's really awesome is that in English it actually has a sweet rhythm to it too. But it says this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. It doesn't say he rose from the dead and now he's alive. Now he lives forevermore. Blah, 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 blah. Because what if he would have risen from the dead and just went straight up to heaven with his dead? You know, went straight up to the Father. He's like, three days later, okay, I did my job. I died for everybody's sins. That wasn't the end of the story. What was important is that he was seen. Because when he was seen, it changed everything so Paul wrote some of it he explains the relationships between the parts of it he authenticates the most important event recorded in it now while the gospels were being written Matthew Mark Luke and John the apostles 
were writing these others, and there were other writers writing things. James, the brother of Jesus, actually wrote an epistle himself, a letter that su survived antiquity and was included in the New Testament document. Peter dictated the last two letters, probably wrote more letters, but only two survived. And, and I've said this the other day, I won't go back into it, but a lot of people know that, that when Peter was arrested, actually he was considered ignorant. Um, he, we know he was illiterate. So Peter dictated, he sat down with somebody and was able to write these letters that survived. But when Peter spoke about Jesus, he did it with such eloquence. And when Peter spoke, people listened. People listened, and, and people became followers immediately. John, who wrote the Gospel of John, he also wrote other letters that survived. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. They were all collected and protected and considered valuable, not because these people were writing the Bible. They weren't collected and protected and considered valuable because somebody one day stood up and said, Okay, listen. We're going to put together a Bible so everybody take care of all your letters. Okay, that wasn't the way it was. They were protected and, and taken care of because of who was writing them. And then something fabulous happens. In the 4th century, we preached this last month, Constantine, the emperor, he lifts the ban. I mean, he lifts the law against religion and he gives all religions freedom to worship how they see fit. This never happened before. So the emperor before is now taking all Christian literature and saying it's against the law. If you get caught with literature, you die. And thousands of Christians died trying to protect just the document of John. Just people were getting caught with the document of, of Matthew, and they were killed for it. Now, this new emperor, and whatever reason, some people say it was all political. Who cares? Who cares? For whatever reason, he decided that, you know what, now everybody has freedom to worship who you. And you know what happened? The, the Christians came out of the woodworks. And they started getting their documents out. And they started sharing. They were like, Don't you, do you still have John? Do you still have John? Bring John. Bring John. I have Matthew. I have everything that Matthew wrote because my grandfather, he was with Matthew. And they started going, do you have Luke? Do you have the letter that he wrote to, to come on? And, and they started putting them together. And they were like, let's sit down. Let's talk. Let's talk. And these theologians started studying and reading. And what they did is they said, we've got we've to take these, what Paul wrote to the churches that he was planting around the Mediterranean realm. What we've got to do is we've got to take those letters that are valuable. They're, they're how to live, how to, how to build a church. We need to take those. And we need to take Matthew and Mark and, and the letter that Luke wrote and John. And we need to put those in. Those are on the life of Christ. And, and eventually they'll be called gospels. And then we need to take the Jewish scripture, the old covenant, that actually shows, sheds light on this. That actually all points to Jesus. And we needed to put it all together. And they put it all together. And you know what's funny? The empire that made a law that you couldn't have these documents. The empire that made a law that you could not have any of this stuff. Is now the empire that not only gave them freedom. But funded funded these documents being returned. And as they returned, they funded the copy of the first Bible. They called it Tabiblia.
It was huge. <laughs> it was a giant book. A giant and very, very expensive. And for a long, long time, there was one. One. See? In our mind, we're like, oh, yeah, well, then everybody got started getting by. Bible for you, Bible for you, Bible for you. No. For generations, people never even saw a Bible. <laughs> That's crazy because the church still grew. <laughs> How can you be a Christian? <laughs> right? And yet the Bible was not created. It was bound together. And then we were given the Bible. Now, your takeaway from this series that I want you to understand is as fabulous and unbelievable as this Bible is, the Bible did not create Christianity. Okay? Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Christianity is the result of an event that created a movement that produced text that were collected, protected, and bound into a book. I'm going to say this again. Listen, Christianity is the result of an event. What's that event? Come on, yeah, come on. The, the Christianity is the result of the resurrection that created a movement. What was the movement? The church. We are the movement. We are the movement that created a movement that produced text. We documented it. It was so fabulous and awesome and unbelievable. We had to document it. So the resurrection caused us to become a group of people, the ecclesia. And it, we, as we became a group of people, we had to document this fabulous thing that was happening. And as we documented it, it was collected protected and bound and put into a book. The creed was this. Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. The story of the Bible reminds us this, that the most important question is not, are you at peace with everything in the Bible? I've said this before, but when I was growing up, it was easy. All I had to say was, but the Bible says... And it was done. I talk to a lot of people who aren't like you. I talk to a lot of people who aren't believers, who weren't raised in church, who didn't come from a religious background. And when I say, yeah, but the Bible says, they say, who cares? Who cares? We don't even believe the Bible because of this or that or whatever. Listen, the story of the Bible reminds us the most important question is not, are you at peace with everything in it? But the most important question is this. Are you at peace with a God that sent his son into this world to die, pay for your sins, so that you could have what Jesus promised that was eternal life and a relationship that starts right now with your heavenly father? Can you be at peace with that? Because, see, that is why I read this book every day. That's why I studied this book. This book has never become so alive to me in my entire life. I am so in love with it because 
understanding it has helped me fall more madly in love with my heavenly Father than I could have ever imagined before. But I don't tether my faith on the book. I tether my faith on the event that sparked the book. I just want to take us back for just a moment and to remind us that everything that we do, everything that we do takes us back to one event, the single greatest event ever, ever in the history of known man, the resurrection. Resurrection. 